Welcome back to IPM on the Fly, a podcast that features lively, educational conversations with experts on a variety of integrated pest management topics. This series is brought to you from the University of Georgia Extension IPM program with funding from the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. Thanks for tuning in. Today we have Elmer Gray here with us. He works in the Department of Entomology at the University of Georgia. Elmer maintains the only known colony of black flies. He's a public health extension specialist for Georgia, dealing mostly with mosquito training and site evaluations. And he's also a commercial pesticide applicator specializing in black fly suppression. I read here on, let's see, is this ResearchGate, that you've operated a program in South Carolina for the past 24 years. Are you still operating that? I am. I am. That's that's good information there. Uh, I've been doing black fly control in South Carolina for 28 years now, so it's been a long time process. I'm using an integrated pest management approach to that as well. So you travel a lot? I travel uh, regularly every other weekend to South Carolina. So black flies, is that more of a North Georgia? We have, there are no black fly control programs in Georgia. Um, South Carolina and North Carolina both have programs in. Uh, it's the Piedmont region. The large rivers in the Piedmont can produce large populations of nuisance black flies. And then if there's a golf courses or what usually try to do control or suppression. So that's, that's kind of been the driving force. But I've also done black fly work on three different continents. So I've been around with the black fly wow. world. And black flies, I, I always think of like those little biting midges, those little gnats. Are, are black flies different? Yeah, so, so gnat is a general term that covers all small flies. So yes, people consider black fly gnats. They're much more of a problem in the north. Canada has biting species that bite people. Pennsylvania has huge populations where they do the largest black fly control programs. But black flies also transmit the flareal nematode that causes river blindness in Africa. So that's been a real driving force for our laboratory, working with the Onchocerciasis program in the World Health Organization in West Africa in years past to develop the BTI, the Bacillus thuringiensis larvicide. Bacillus thuringia what? Elmer is talking about a bacterium that is found naturally in soils throughout the world called Bacillus thuringiensis, referred to simply as Bt. Bt spores have proteins that are toxic to insect larvae. There are many types of Bt, and each type or strain affects different insect groups. So the subspecies that Elmer is talking about is called Israelensis. Therefore, he's referring to it as BTI. And it's used as a larvicide to kill mosquito, black fly, and fungus gnat larvae before they can grow into adults that bite people. Doing so reduces those pest populations and may reduce the risk of getting infected with various diseases that they transmit. It's a registered insecticide with the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA. So it has been thoroughly studied for its effectiveness and safety for use in residential, commercial, and agricultural settings. Um, Organic farming operations also use BT products. Of course, all chemicals, regardless of being naturally derived or synthetically created, should be used safely according to their label to help protect people and the environment. Okay, that's it. So it's more of a Piedmont issue in Georgia 
further south, we don't really see black flies as a problem? Yes, that's correct. Um, we have black flies here in Athens from time to time. When the rivers are high, when we have strong river flows, the black fly populations thrive. The more water in the rivers, the more habitat for the larvae, the more, the more adult flies you'll get. South Georgia has other species, but they're not typically a pest. South Georgia has its own brand of gnats around Macon there at the fall line. The sandy soils of that area produce the eye gnats and then the noceums, which are, are noceums are everywhere. They're just particularly bad in the coastal regions. Um, I have them around my house in Athens uh, along the creek bottom. You can have them anywhere. They bother me in my garden sometimes. Okay. Well, I have to say, a friend of mine went to her cabin. She's an entomologist. And she came back, and I thought she'd fall on hiking. I look at me, and I'm like, what happened to you? She went, black flies. She's like, this is what it looks like. So I thought, there's a reason I don't want to meet a black fly. Yes, in the mountains of Georgia and North Carolina here, there are species that come out of the smaller streams that will bite people, particularly in the early spring. So it's kind of a spring event, and then they kind of go away as the summer progresses. Mm -hmm. And they need constantly moving water. They need flowing water. Black flies and mosquitoes are closely related, but the larvae of black flies are in flowing water, your rivers and streams, and the larvae of mosquitoes are in still water. So let's get your opinion on the benefit. What what is there anything redeeming about a black fly or a mosquito? Go. Okay, as, as a, an ecologist, they would capture small particles. They're both filter feeders. So they eat very small things, turn it into larger things that other larger insects and um, animals can eat. So they're part of the food chain as far as, they're, yeah, the food for, food for fish and other, other insects, animals. They're capturing real small particles and making them into bigger particles that other things can eat. That's what black flies do in a river. All right. You said black flies kind of are a seasonal thing, an early spring issue. Mosquitoes. Is there a season for mosquitoes in Georgia, or is that like just the plague that we deal with year-round? Uh, it's going to vary. With Georgia being such a big state, the coastal South Georgia will have mosquitoes almost year-round, as opposed to here in the upstate, where it's a much shorter season and different species. So Georgia has a high diversity. We have, uh, right now, we believe there's 63 species mm. of mosquitoes in Georgia alone. And that's pretty pretty high diversity going from the mountains to the tropical swamplands of the south. So wide range. You know, we're we're really coming into mosquito season now when the, when the nights stay warm is when the mosquito populations take off. And what that does is that allows the, the standing water where the larvae are developing stays warm and they grow, develop faster. So the cycle starts speeding up now. You get more generations, more emerge more mosquitoes to bite you. So what can we do to stop the population from accelerating? Is there anything we can do? The biggest thing is to eliminate standing water. The mosquito larvae develop in standing water, the larvae and pupil stages. So many times I'll get called out to communities, they'll want to know about a retention pond at the corner or something, and when I get to the house, it's, it's stuff in their yard, stuff in their neighbor's yard, tires, buckets, tarps, the trays that go under plants are one of the most common things for a homeowner to produce mosquitoes. So so the trays under plants, so any kind of thing that's holding water around our homes, water should drain off and go go away, keep moving and, and, and get to where it's going. Um, any place where water holds 
has the potential to produce mosquitoes. So how fast are we talking? Okay, as we, we get to the heat of the summer here, they can get through their egg to adult stage in maybe five to seven days. So when you talk about cleaning out, everyone wants to worry about the bird feeder. All right, if you let the water stand in the bird feeder for over a week, it can produce mosquitoes from, bird, from the bird baths. That's what I'm talking about. Dog bowls, people want to talk about you know, your pet dishes. When you put out a clean pot of water or a clean bucket of water, it's not attractive to a female mosquito until it's begun getting some algae grow in it, gets some biological activity there. Then she can sense that there's going to be food for her larval stage to feed on, and she'll put her eggs there. Clean water is not attractive to a female mosquito. You think about it, you know, larvae, mosquito larvae are usually in some of the nastiest waters, and some species are more tolerant than others. It has a range. We've got 63 species, so they'll be everywhere. But but mosquitoes are adapted to some of the nastiest water that you can be around. And you, you said something. Females are the ones that are biting, right? Correct. Only the female mosquito bites, only the female black fly bites. Uh, most of the biting flies, it's the female, and she's getting a blood meal to get proteins to produce her eggs. So male flies, are what, where, what are they doing? They're going to feed on nectar and reproduce. So, so the female... Both the male and female will feed on nectar of flowers, get sugar and sucrose for flight energy. They're going to mate. The male will die off earlier. The female uh, will de- go to blood feed, deposit eggs, maybe go to blood feed again. That's when they're transmitting disease, typically. They get pick up a virus from a, from a bird. West Nile virus, for instance, they blood feed the first time on a bird that has virus in its system, pick it up, the virus develops in the mosquito, next time they bite your horse or your grandmother and cause trouble. Okay, uh, this is, I've got to debunk this. So years ago, I was going out with a friend and she was like, make sure to put on that <laughs> insect repellent. The mosquitoes are out and we don't want to get AIDS. Yeah, AIDS was never, has never been identified in a mosquito. So this mosquito transmission and AIDS is two different things. Because that's carried through blood. When a mosquito bites us, they're not swapping no, they're, they're injecting saliva into you okay. to keep the, the blood flowing and as an anesthetic so you don't feel them initially and drawing blood out. So is it there, the, the mosquito proboscis is a two-tubed siphon, two-tube proboscis. It's injecting saliva in and withdrawing blood out. Okay. So viruses that are transmitted, the ones that we're getting, are coming in through their saliva. Yes. When, when, when a mosquito transmits something to us, they're injecting it from their salivary glands okay. into uh, the next host. So what are some of the diseases that have shown up here in Georgia? West Nile viruses are still our most common mosquito-borne pathogen or disease. It's common around the cities. The, the um, mosquitoes that transmit it actually develop into storm drains. So when we have droughts, this is really something unique about the mosquito thing, is that the dry periods actually allow the mosquitoes to develop into storm drains because they're not getting flushed out by the heavy rains. And West Nile can actually be more prevalent during dry years than it is during years with heavy rainfall. Oh, no kidding. So it's really counterintuitive for the whole mosquito thing. Mm-hmm. Is that You know you think, oh, it's dry, the mosquitoes won't be bad. Well, for the most part, no, they, they, they haven't been bad this year. Actually, spring, we've dried out. Uh, we came out of winter a little bit wet. It's dried out a lot since then. And mosquito populations have not been bad across Georgia yet. They're starting to starting to pick up in places. There's always some around. And we've had some rain here recently, and we'll see kind of... The mosquito populations are, are really responsive to the localized conditions and the localized rainfall. Hmm. 
Michelle and I were talking um, leading up to this interview, and we were trying to figure out, you know, is there active testing of mosquitoes to see if they're carrying certain viruses, or are we just sort of waiting for people to call CDC and report problems? That's a good question. There is active testing in localized areas. Okay. Chatham County, Savannah has a real con- has the, the state's most comprehensive mosquito control program and they collect mosquitoes, send them up to actually to the College of Veterinary Science here in UGA and they do the testing there. Danny Mead at the um, Southeastern Wildlife Disease Cooperative Unit runs okay. a lab. Valdosta State, Mark Blackmore does does surveillance down there and his mosquitoes are tested. Fulton County does some testing. Rosemary Kelly with State Department of Public Health may do a little bit as well. Um, Richmond County also over in Augusta, they're going to they're going to have some mosquitoes tested. They're kind of our hubs. Chatham County, Richmond County, Valdosta are where really some of the most kind of comprehensive mosquito control work is done. So I guess kind of a a picture, a snapshot of what's going on. It's a snapshot. It's a pretty it's a pretty uh, thin snapshot. <laughs> You know that's not a lot of a lot of coverage, but it's it takes resources to do it, and that's that's where there's enough resources to do the work. Does a cold winter versus a mild winter have any bearing on the season ahead? Uh, it's pretty pretty limited effect. Mosquitoes have been around; they've been found in amber for over 100 million years, so they're highly adapted, and that's really just what you take out of it. They've been around a long time; they're used to cold winters, they're used to warm winters. Um, a cold winter is going to hold them back cold spring will hold them back so the populations develop much slower. If you have a warm uh, late winter, the populations get an earlier start and that helps them. There can be that random late frost that damages trees and, and blueberries and things. That can act, might get some insects that have started to develop and then get hit by unusually cold weather. But, but insects are very adapted to cold weather and usually can um, adjust to it pretty yeah. quickly. So I have a more practical question. Because I know we're coming into mosquito season, but we're also coming into outdoor wedding season. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for all those brides out there planning their nuptials and with a beautiful garden, and they're looking for ways to keep the mosquitoes from eating their guests alive, do you have any suggestions? Uh, that's a good question, because uh, the, the wedding industry, I'm sure, is booming right now after yeah, two yeah, years of, of COVID. You know, a, a scouting trip. If you're getting wedding, getting married on a Saturday, make sure you talk to the venue. Make sure they've got an idea of what's going on as far as their mosquitoes. Um, if you're getting married on Saturday, check it out on Wednesday, Tuesday or Wednesday. Make sure that you're not getting carried away, because there are the mosquito control companies. There are private companies that could come out and do treatments, and I would not hesitate if. You were in an area along a river where you've got floodwater mosquitoes, and and there are isolated areas. Occasionally, the botanical gardens will have bad mosquitoes on the hiking trails along the river because some of those areas are floodwater areas where those mosquitoes develop. So, so being aware, a scouting trip ahead of time to see what it's like. Talk to the venue, make sure that they're it's on their radar. So that's good to know. So don't have the bug spray there and spray your guests down or citronella candles or any of that's really citronella candles out in the open aren't going to do, you know, that's going to be misleading. If you've got real mosquito problems, you need to deal with it in a real way. And that would be, that would be a scouting trip, talk to the venue and contract someone to do an app, uh, an adulticide application if necessary. Okay. Here's an idea. 
I get bit all the time. Mm-hmm. So what if you invited like a crew of people that get Who, bit all the time oh, yeah. as human lures mm-hmm. and you put them on the outskirts? Mm-hmm. I think you just have a small segment of your your participants miserable. Well, you pay them. Yeah. You got to pay them. It's, it's pay part you. of wedding services. <laughs> oh. You have your human lures to stand. You are giving your blood away, so I guess it would be worth Okay, remember I'm a commercial applicator in South Carolina, North Carolina? I suggest you find a commercial applicator and deal with it in a more comprehensive manner. <laughs> but that's a good idea. I'm glad you're thinking about, you know, so I mean, outside of the box. Outside of the yeah, box, yep. we got to consider all options. Well, because I... This I, is IPM, so... That's right. This is IPM, so we got to look at all the tools in the toolbox. No, but, but really, 23andMe, I read, had this service... When you spat in your cup mm-hmm. and you sent in your, your your saliva to be tested, you could opt in for research. And one of their research studies was on attractiveness to mosquitoes. Did you opt in? I didn't do the 23andMe. Um, it's not that that particular research study has closed. I don't think it's open anymore. But they did find that there are seven particular locations on DNA that make a person more or less attractive to mosquitoes. I think there's probably some some more research there. Well, this is an interesting topic because host attractiveness is is highly variable. You know, who's who you're saying you get bit a lot. I don't get bit too bad. My wife gets bothered. Um, mosquitoes and most of the biting insects are attracted to the carbon dioxide in our breath. So the more hyper you are, Emily, the more me. the more CO2 you put off, the more attractive you may be to mosquitoes and other biting insects. But but we put off like 300 cents off of our skin. So people are highly variable as far as, you know, who has mosquitoes attracted to them more than others. So there's a lot of variability. There's still more research to be done in this area. That It's not real clear, um, the repellency and attractiveness thing. But also it may be, you know, you may have, your skin may produce scents that actually cover your your attractiveness. And, and so you kind of mask your attractiveness. So it's highly variable. And um, pregnant women, the, the higher your metabolic rate, the more CO2 you're going to put off, the more heat you're going to put off, the more attractive you're going to be to mosquitoes. All right, so exercising. Exercising, getting, you know, you're going you're to be putting off more scent, more, more carbon dioxide. So, so we're at this this part of the conversation. We're talking about what we can do to prevent mosquito bites because that's really what it's all about. So you eliminate a standing water at your home and light-colored, loose-fitting clothes. You know, we got all this dry plus, all these hiking clothes and things, and sunscreen clothes. That stuff is good. That's You know, we're in a different place now than where we used to be. I'm an outdoorsman. I understand it's hot. But... Light-colored, loose-fitting clothes, pants, long sleeves, um, and then using an EPA-approved repellent. I'm big on using a an EPA-approved repellent, something that's been tested and shown to work. DEET is still the gold standard. Low concentrations of it are very good. It's been used since the 40s. But there are other products now, Picaridin, IR3535, oil of lemon eucalyptus you want to use a natural product all right this is synthesized from plants but it's only approved for children as young as three years of age whereas DEET can be put on two-month-old babies really 
So, so natural, there's a lot of natural things that are very toxic. Yeah. So, so don't, don't fall into the natural thing. Uh, fall into what works and what's going to protect you. If, if, you know, if we get to the end of the summer and there's West Nile activity going on, make sure you're using a repellent when you're out. Um, just a little bit goes a long ways. With children, put it on your hands, wipe them down, rub them down, and then wash them off when you come in, and you're going to be fine. Yeah, I, I made the mistake of purchasing a whole bunch of random essential oils like catnip. Um, I think there was like patchouli in there. I did get the oil of lemon eucalyptus, uh, neem. Anyway, I concocted this uh, natural insect repellent, coated myself and the children, and I kid you not, went outside right after application and a mosquito bit me through the layer of oil. And then I spent the rest of the day grabbing my slippery children and then (laughs) their clothes at the end of the night had oil blotches on them. So had to wash the clothes in a pre-wash of Dawn dish soap. Okay. Okay. Well, that's a testimonial to... It's a testimonial. Your experiment failed. Um, The essential oils are starting to show some positive results. There, there are some good things going on with essential oils, so I don't think we want to dis, discard that all the way. Um, they're working with them. That's a, that's an area of, of research right now. I don't know that we're, we're up to speed. Typically what they'll show is that they may work for a short period of time. Um, but, but be aware that, that the, um, the tested products are safe for children as young as two months of age, most of them. Um, they're very safe and they're very effective. And you're only using a small amount of them wash yourself off when you come in by using by using the long sleeves and pants you don't have much exposed skin so so you're you're reducing your exposure already that way so so there's lots of research out there with mosquitoes i'm guessing since it's been the bane of all of us most of our lives for generations so what is the craziest kind of research you've seen because I'm going to tell you we watched a video uh, from was it National Geographic National Geographic and they had they were talking about this research where apparently I mean mosquitoes like blondes better than brunettes so I mean I can top that Uh, they've done research that shows that the scents that come from Lindenburg cheese (laughs) which which is similar to the scents that come from your feet dirty socks yeah are highly attractive to mosquitoes. Oh, good. I thought you were going to tell us to no. shrub that on no, us. No, 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 that would be the person at the wedding who's going to use his bait. You rub with Lindenburg cheese. That is what we're going to do. <laughs> who's last on your list? How much do we have to pay you is the question. <laughs> What's the price? Wow. But but it, there again, it's that host attractiveness thing, and, and um, there's a lot of research to be done there. These mosquitoes have been around a long time, and what attracts them. But that's that's some kind of sense that's uh, emitting. You know, your feet are, are highly sweaty. There's a lot of stuff going on there. You know, that's not your cleanest part of your body, probably. So you got a lot of activity, and it's going to put off smells that are going to be attractive to some of them. Now, is the only thing that we can really rely on is our own personal action or are municipalities like governments involved and parks and rec services involved in helping keeping populations lower? I mean, that's a good question. It varies across the state. Um, I live in Oglethorpe County. We have no mosquito control in Oglethorpe County. Clark County does a little bit of education and will treat for larval populations on public property. 
Um, Chatham County has helicopters and they're, they're set up at the airport in Savannah and do comprehensive applications. They've got some of the largest dredge spoil sites along the harbor down there. So uh, it varies across the state. It's minimal in most places. Small towns across South Georgia will do some adult deciding. And, and that's one of the things where we got with, with West Nile years ago. People are, oh, you know, adult deciding is not effective. Well, if you live on the Okefenokee Swamp in some small little town, if you adult decide on Thursday after Thursday evening, that might be the best you can do because you have 10,000 acres of swamp out there that you can't afford to treat. Okay, real quick note here. Adulticides are insecticides used by mosquito control programs to kill the adult stage of mosquitoes. One way is an ultra-low volume spray or a ULV spray, which turns the liquid into very small droplets that float in the air and kill flying mosquitoes on contact. And EPA-registered adulticides have been studied for effectiveness and safety when used according to label instructions. All right, back to Elmer. So you suppress your adult mosquitoes on Thursday night, and you can tolerate your weekend. So adult deciding is effective. It's still part of IPM. Um, you would like to do education, source reduction, surveillance, larviciding, and then adulticide. But it just depends on the circumstances on what you can do, what the resources are. It costs money to do mosquito control. It costs money to do insect control. And it takes good people and trained people to do it properly. That's why the entomology department of UGA is so important. Say people have, you know, retention ponds on their property or in the city. Are there products that, that we can put in that water that's still safe if you're going to be fishing or swimming in that water? Yeah, really good question. The mosquito dunks <clears throat> that are available at Home Depot and your feed and seed stores around your towns are usually the Bacillus thuringiensis, the BTI-based products and they're good for your rain barrels. If you've got rain barrels are a great thing. We went through the drought a few years back. They exploded across Athens and it kind of, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword because I'm all about saving water. I'm, I grow plants, but you put a rain barrel out, chances are it's going to have mosquitoes in it in a few years. Those screens that are enclosing into the various orifices or whatever uh, eventually fail. And it's important at the homeowner. So the mosquito dunks, yes, getting back to that. The products that are available, they're safe. All the larvicides, the EPA-approved larvicides, are safe for, for animals. Um, methoprene, there, there's mosquito bits, uh, a granular formulation that can be used also in mosquito trough, in uh, horse watering troughs, animal watering troughs, things like that. Any kind of standing water that you think you have wigglers or the larvae in can be treated easily from the, with the uh, products that are available from your, your local stores. So Elmer was talking about using something called a mosquito dunk. These products contain the BTI that I mentioned before. And while Elmer is referring to really small bodies of water here, these products can also be used in larger ponds. Of course, you would use it according to the label. Um, and the products are also safe for other aquatic animals because remember they're only targeting the larval stages of mosquitoes, black flies, and fungus gnats. Other non-chemical options would be either to eliminate the water altogether if the mosquitoes have really become um, an overwhelming issue, but you could also add fish to the pond that will help keep the larval 
population to a minimum. All right, let's get back to the interview. Would you say that mosquitoes are the most dangerous animal in the world? That's what the story is, so yeah. Yeah. Um, they transmit disease, they transmit malaria, and that still kills about 600,000 people per year. So yeah, mosquitoes transmit a lot of disease-causing organisms, primarily in the uh, developing countries along the equator where they have the hot, long seasons. Um, so we really don't have an appreciation for it here in the United States and in Georgia. And the, our quality of life, running water, is a, is, a, is a huge reduction in mosquito production because the barrels, if you're in a barrio in Brazil, that your water barrel outside your shack is growing mosquitoes and transmitting dengue to your kids. So, so running water, having water that comes out of a faucet is a huge advantage to the quality of life in the United States. We're very fortunate in the United States not to face the burden that some areas do. And that's why, you know, Florida, warm, getting closer to the equator, they have their, really the world's most comprehensive and developed mosquito control is done in Florida. They have some of the best. They have the resources because they have tourism, so they have money. And if it wasn't for air conditioning and mosquito control, you wouldn't want to go to Florida. Yeah, I was there. I was in St. George a few years ago, and a truck came by, and it was spraying the yards. It had this, like, fogger machine, and they were spraying the yards. I'd never seen that before. The the fogging trucks are still used in places. Um, You know, typically it's important to do the adult control late in the day, almost at dark. Mosquitoes are tip. Most of the species are active at twilight, so so late in the day is when the when the mosquitoes are active. So that's when if you're going to do an adulticide application, you're putting that fog of small particles or droplets out there when the mosquitoes are active, so they come in contact with it. You do not want to adulticide in the heat of the afternoon. The the thermals will take that product just up into the atmosphere, and that's not effective. So so we want to talk about pollinators a little bit. Um, using an IPM approach, you know, education, source reduction, larviciding. There's a lot of mosquito control that can be done before you do that adulticide treatment that makes beekeepers and, and people so nervous. So we focus on the IPM aspect of it and the other steps. When we get to that adulticiding stage, we need to have communication between our beekeepers and our organized mosquito control programs. Um, we're working hard to train the commercial operators who are doing yard treatments about the importance of pollinators. People are people are on board with this. People understand it. Um, and then the fact that the, most of the adulticiding is done at dusk when the bees are back in their hives. So so there's been studies done, published scientific studies from Louisiana that show that properly conducted adulticiding does not affect beehives. So these are broad spectrum chemistries that are being used? Uh, it's is mostly pyrethroids. You know, we don't have many, many um, tools in the toolbox right now. Uh, there's, there's work going on trying to develop new stuff, but, but there's limited options really as far as mosquito control is concerned. Because in, in the scheme of pesticide use, it's a relatively small volume of pesticide used for public health as opposed to agriculture and forestry. Mm-hmm. Very small amount. So other blood suckers in Georgia. Oh, tick season is upon us too. Um, I've just dealt with a couple recently myself doing some outdoor work and um, ticks are bad. Ticks, 
Mosquitoes may kill the most people, but ticks transmit the widest range of pathogens. Oh, okay. Bacterias, protozoas, viruses, they can transmit a lot of different things. We're fortunate in Georgia that we don't have that much disease transmission by ticks, but there are there is the potential. <clears throat> people have wanted to talk recently about the Heartland virus was found. There was a study produced by Emory showing that that was found in a couple counties. It's just another virus, another pathogen that I don't mean to say it like that, but it's just another reason to be aware of, of ticks and the things you can do to prevent them. Uh, there's also been the longhorn tick has been introduced in the Northeast and has been found in Georgia now a couple years later. Um, this is a tick that is unique that it can reproduce parthenogenically. So the female tick can reproduce without um, mating. One female can produce fertile eggs. So like thousands of them, correct? Yes, a thousand to two thousand eggs per female. So one tick can initiate a big population. If you see lo unusually large numbers of ticks on animals, please report it to your public health department or the state department of ag. They're going to be one aware of it. And primarily, these animals would be like a cow, sheep. Yes. Livestock. Yes. Yeah, livestock, livestock type animals. Yep. If you have unusually large numbers, it should be reported because um, you, you could have a new, new area of the infestation. But ticks in general, um, they're everywhere. Uh, the Lone Star tick is our most common tick. If you have deer in your yard, you've probably got ticks in your yard, and that pretty much is everywhere today. The way to prevent them is to keep the vegetation cut back. If you have hiking trails or walking trails, keep them mowed. You don't want the grass to touch your legs. The ticks will be out on the end of the blade of grass, questing, they call it, just reaching out with their front legs, trying to wait for a dog or a deer or a hiker to come by, get on you, crawl up your leg, get at your waistline, get at your shoulder, your, your armpits, and attach. So keeping trails, keeping the vegetation cut down. Another thing is something I never would have done, but tucking your pants into your socks. It's pretty cool now, though, right? I don't know if it's cool. I don't know if it'll ever be cool, but it's really <laughs> effective. Because um, you think about it, you could be in work pants, tick gets on your shoe, on your ankle, it's going right up your leg. You put your pants inside your socks, spray some repellent around your socks, those ticks do not get to you. Tuck your shirt into your pants. Now, that's a hard one to do when it's hot and you're working in the woods, but and spray in your waist. The, there, there are repellents with permethrin, which is actually an insecticide, but it's approved for use on clothing. You can get permethrin-treated clothes. You can buy the clothes now. I would just buy a can of it. You've got outdoor clothes or your work clothes or your coverall suit. Spray that down with the permethrin. But if you tuck your pants into your socks, your shirt into your pants, and spray down with permethrin, you that's like 99% effective. Chiggers are another. Chiggers are going to be closely associated with ticks. The same techniques are going to be effective for preventing them. Uh, but but other, DEET is also going to be good. You can use DEET if you don't want to use the permethrin on your clothes. Uh, but but use a repellent when you're going to be out on the vegetation because because the stuff's out there. You know, one of the things that scares me most or, or makes me most aware of ticks is um, people can develop a red meat allergy to a tick bite. So a tick attaches to you injects saliva into you, your body has an allergic reaction to some of the sugars in that saliva, the carbohydrates, and meat has similar carbohydrates in it, 
and you can have an allergic reaction hours after you eat your meat so it's confusing where you the reactions can be pretty severe with hives and, and um, yeah that would be that would be upsetting to me as well so a question because we're talking about outdoorsmen and yes you're out in woods you're out in big you know properties but for the homeowner I've lived in two counties in Georgia both of which have tons of deer like right like I'm in inside the perimeter of Athens and there are herds of deer I just wonder is there anything that that would do that same work that spraying yourself is or I mean just to keep it manageable and keep the ticks down if, if you feel like you have a legitimate um, tick problem in your property uh, you have children who are picking them up when they're playing in the yard your dogs are always have them on them you're always fighting them um, when the problem started in New Jersey when the longhorn tick was introduced they used a granular formulation of carbureal or seven and they, they found that that was effective in the spring to help reduce the tick populations. So granular treatments around your yard, you may have to contract a, a yard company to do that, but we're not getting rid of all the deer, no matter how hard we try. So, so ticks are gonna be there. So keeping the vegetation cut back, fencing, you know, whatever you can do is gonna all help uh, in that direction. And that's kind of IPM and it's in its nutshell. So you mentioned chiggers. I, I got into an argument with a friend about this who was convinced that they're burrowing. They're not burrowing. They are not burrowing. You are correct. You win. Um, they they uh, feed at the hair follicles, and your body has a pretty vicious reaction, allergic reaction to their saliva as well, so it swells up around there. That's all of them, the mosquito bites, the tick bites. Uh, our bodies re- eventually react to the components of that saliva, and that's what leaves the welt whether it's a mosquito bite or the the chigger, so your hair follicle gets all swolled up, nasty, you start scratching it, it's oozing, and, and that makes it look like the chigger isn't as embedded into you when actually the skin is up irritated and, and, and swelled around. Going back to ticks for a second, um, you know, Lyme disease is, is a real threat in the Northeast, it's, it's rampant. Uh, we don't have as much of it here in Georgia, but a tick bite is, is really commonly gonna leave a, a pretty serious welt that will itch for weeks so so the lone star tick that is most common um leaves an itchy itchy welt that will go on for a long period so don't be surprised if you have a reaction you have a tick attached to you you pull it off that's going to be an itchy spite for for a while Mm -hmm. um and just wash it you know uh, removing ticks you want to grab them close to the skin pull straight away that's where you know we talk about smothering them you know you don't do not you know don't put a match head sharp needle vaseline no pull them carefully as close to the skin as possible straight away from the skin wash the site with hot soapy water you can rub it with alcohol you can put neosporin on it and monitor it that that will that is the way you remove ticks that have been attached never understood that match thing like you know or did I miss something? Like, I'm imagining people, like, you got to burn yourself. We did that to my dog when he was little. It was awful. We had, like, my sister was holding his front paws. I survive? was holding his back paws. And Mom had a hot matchstick, blew it out, and tried to burn the bud of the tick. And it backed up. But I heard later that it might have thrown up as it was back yeah. <laughs> those probably stories that you shouldn't tell right there you know we all have some stuff from our youth that we need to just keep there um, that's that's bad practice yeah it can cause them to to uh, 
actually regurgitate the, the pathogens, whatever they're carrying, into the host. So you want to just carefully pull them away from the skin. Okay. There's even tick tweezers out now. I don't know that they're any different than just a good pair of forceps. Well, the, the thing behind that was that someone had told us, well, if you if you pull them out with tweezers, the head's going to get stuck. So you need to make sure that it backs all the way out. So we okay. Well, the mouth parts are a problem. They okay. they, they get embedded, and and if you, to look at them under a microscope, they're like a, a rasp with little teeth on them. Mm-hmm. So so that's where you're grabbing as close as possible to the skin. But then even if uh, the tip of the mouth parts are left, when you wash it with with antiseptic, you wash it good. You know the pathogens are in the body of the tick, not necessarily in the tip of the pro- of the the mouth parts. Okay. So so get the best you can. If you wanna if you wanna excise your skin and carve out those mouth parts, I would rather see you do that than put match tips on on the tick. The, the, you know there's a number of pathogens transmitted as I said from ticks. Um, so if you have a tick bite and you be you know, make note of it on a calendar. If you find a tick attached to you or you or your child, make note of it on the calendar. And if you feel bad in any any way, shape, or form for the next two weeks, don't hesitate to tell the doctor about it. Mm-hmm. You know, make sure that doctor's aware that you may have had some type of tick exposure. Um, most of the tick pathogens are highly treatable with antibiotics. So, so things can be treated pretty readily. Early treatment's important for your tick tick-borne things biggest thing there is trying to keep the ticks off us so and being aware that you know you just can't go out walking through grass now i consider tax day august april 15th from april 15th on it's pretty much tick season okay um and then if you pull a tick off maybe keep it you can keep it um you know there's there's probably less testing of ticks than there is of mosquitoes you know you talked about that uh the main thing is the get it off, get the site cleaned, and then be aware of it. Be aware of your exposure. Where should folks look online if they'd like to get more information on uh, mosquitoes, ticks, chiggers, any of the blood-sucking creatures? Uh, We have a number of circulars through the Georgia Cooperative Extension Service for mosquito-related issues and and other things, biting and and stinging pests. Uh, The State Department of Public Health, Rosemary Kelly, is a real good resource and has some great materials. The CDC is also a great resource as well. Their entomology branch is led by Roxanne Conley, and that's the world's foremost, uh, one of the world's foremost entomologists. There's going to be a lot of good stuff coming from the CDC related to entomology going forward. Well, thank you very much for coming to join us today. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Great talking to you. And that's it, folks. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and we'll catch you on the fly real soon.